Welcome to F the Hustle. I'm your host, Kim Doyle. You want a life that is meaningful and exciting. In this podcast, we're going to talk about launching and growing an online business that fits your lifestyle. F the Hustle is all about doing good work, building real relationships, and most importantly, creating a business that supports how you want to live your life. You don't have to sacrifice the quality of your life today to create something that sets your soul on fire. And yes, that includes making a lot of money. So we'll be talking about selling, charging what you're worth, and how earning more means helping more people. My goal is to help you find freedom and create a business on your terms. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Kim Doyle Show. I'm excited today because we're going to dig into something that I don't know a ton about. Um, Obviously, I'm very aware of it. And my guest is going to peel back the curtain, so to speak. So my guest today is Kevin Ramsey. He is one of the co-founders of Warren James. And we're going to dig into that. But first of all, Kevin, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah, so this is great. And and this is, I'm just going to share this. And any of these little tidbits that you can share with your story would be great. But we connected via Twitter, and I've been saying to people recently, you know, having moved to Costa Rica and like connecting with people here that I'm sure it's similar for you. So much of my business has grown because of relationships. So I love that you just reached out to me. We had a little conversation. You were very patient. I'm like, circle back in a month. Um, we had a conversation. And so just the, the point in connecting and having real relationships with people can really shift the trajectory of your business. Yeah, without a doubt. I've I've been trying to be more proactive personally when it comes to platforms like Twitter and LinkedIn. It those connections are at your fingertips. It's just a matter of like, you know, putting in the time, looking around. Like f- for me recently, I've been really focused on the new phrase, you know, called the creator economy and seeing who else is involved in that space. And it, yeah, it really really helps with your business and helps with your personal growth like having those connections, whether it be something now or like years from now, right? Like having that relationship, who knows what that can mean for you? Exactly. Exactly. I'm, which I don't want to go sideways with my stuff, but I am doing an event down here next year and it's crazy. I think I've landed a sponsor, a pretty big sponsor already without even having the hotel book because of relationships. So it's, it's just one of those things. And I love what you said too. I am obsessed with the quote unquote creator economy. I love that it's this tangible thing now. It's not just what creators call themselves. Um, and just a side note, if you're not following her, follow Cody Sanchez. She is amazing. She has, um, <laughs> this is a random thing. I don't know her personally, but she has a, a, a newsletter and a platform. It's called Contrarian Thinking, but she's all about diversifying in the creator economy as well. So it's pretty fascinating. Anyways, I want to dive into Warren James, which I'm going to let you explain what it is. Um, and then before we go too deep into the company, um, I'd love to know a little bit of your backstory. So feel free to jump in where it suits you best. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I guess a quick little synopsis of Warren James. We've been around for a little under three years now, and we really work with the top 0.01% of content creators out there. And we run their direct-to-consumer merchandise businesses from start to fitness, finish. Everything from you know designing, purchasing product, running the website, customer customer support, fulfillment, you know, everything that goes into it so that the creator just needs to approve the product, approve the plan, and then market the product. And then they get paid out on sales. So that's kind of top line of Warren James. But, you know, for myself personally, how I've gotten here, 
I've been in what, you know, the creator economy it wasn't called this before. Um, I think we were calling them influencers or there was a bunch of different names thrown around at different times, but I've been in it for roughly a decade now. I got my start back in roughly 2010, uh, 2011, where I started a Minecraft server company called Hungercraft. We were the first kind of automated um, event-based Hunger Games in Minecraft server. Uh, this is back when Hunger Games like really blew up. And that was kind of my first foray into the space. It, we, we got to a point where we had millions of uniques every month playing on the server. We had one that we were one of the top Twitch live streams at the time. This is like the first year that uh, when Justin TV switched to twitch.tv. And back then, you know, creators are super dialed into gaming, right? Like, especially at that time, it's still today, right? Like Minecraft is one of the biggest verticals on YouTube. So we would partner with content creators, pay them in some instances, you know, give them free product to help market the server. And that was kind of my, it kind of opened up my eyes a little bit to the power that creators have, you know, someone like Camping Rusher at the time or Sky's Minecraft jumping on the server and it would just, it would blow up, you know, the amount of people trying to join to that. We'd, we'd hit our capacity and then like they would upload videos and it was just being involved in that ecosystem in terms of like a, a service like that, a game like that. It, it, it was pretty crazy. Um, so that, that was really my kind of my first step into the space. Okay, you're going to have to totally dummy that down. So I am very aware of Minecraft and Twitch and everything. I don't get the whole piece of you were hosting, you had a server. So can you like explain it to a fifth grader for me? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, So Minecraft, the way that it, there's a bunch of different ways to play the game. There's like the base game itself, which is kind of single player based. But what, you know, a huge portion of the community plays is this server based element where the community can go and spin up a server. They host it on their personal computer and you have an IP address related to that server and you market that or you just keep it closed to your friends and people can join that. And it's there's a bunch of different things you can do, right? You can customize the map. You can customize like the code of the game so that you're making a unique play experience. And... Oh. Yeah, so what we did was the base version of Minecraft is very survival based like you're you're mining, you're doing all the different elements of Minecraft. What we did was back when Hunger Hunger Games was like really really popular, it was like the the first movie was coming out and we wanted to be able to be in the Hunger Games, like to to take part in the combat of the Hunger Games but in Minecraft. So we <laughs> we coded our own game, we made our own maps so that um 32 people every week we would host a live stream and we'd have commentators like uh, spectators and you would, you would sign up every week saying like, Hey, I would love to be chosen to be one of the 32 people that are fighting it out to be the winner to get prizes. And we would select them randomly. And then every Saturday it would, we would bring them into the map and then the casters would come in, the live stream would go live and it would be like last man standing combat and they would be running around the map. There'd be Easter eggs and all these different elements. And um, it was like kind of one of the first of its kind in terms of like this event based Minecraft experience. And then the popularity of that led us to want to have it be available 24 seven. Cause at first it was just noon on Saturdays was the only time. And if you were what we had thousands of people signing up every week. So it's like, you know, the likelihood of being selected was really low 
So we eventually made it so that you could play at any time of the day. And then we had, you know, millions every month competing in these different automated servers um, that were running 24 seven. Dude, that is nuts. I'm just sitting here astounded. One, I mean, I'm not in the gaming space, um, but just I love the, I don't know, it sounds like you just jumped on this opportunity. But with with that piece, let me ask you this. So do you have a computer science degree? Where did you see this opportunity? What made you jump into that? That's, that's a good question. I, I Funny enough, I was in a Java class at that point in time, um, which is <laughs> what Minecraft is based on. But no, it was like my friend David and I were just kind of talking, we were playing the game. We were like, it would be so cool to be able to, to play this ourselves, you know? And at the time, this was back in beta of Minecraft. So it hadn't quite reached like mass popularity yet. And within my school, there wasn't enough people that had Minecraft to be able to get 32 people together to play this game. So um, without having like anything, we just had like a, a little map that we made. We didn't have any code or anything. I went on to the Minecraft subreddit on Reddit and I just made a post saying like, hey guys, like we're looking for a couple extra people to compete in this little, this event. Like, you know, let me know if anyone's interested. And the next morning when I woke up and I checked the post, it had like a 10,000 people that had commented oh saying God. like, I would love to take part. And as soon as that happened, I was like, we got it. This would be so cool. We have to, we have to make this happen. So I, I went into my Java class and I like, I boot and rallied the whole class pretty much. So like it was a, it was a kind of a group effort to get, the first like alpha version of the code ready. Um, and then from there, we eventually made some money. We were able to like start legitimizing the development process a little bit, but it was like kind of almost community made to a certain degree. Oh my God, that is amazing. And then as it grew, did you get funding or you guys were just, you were, how did you make money with this? Were you charging people to get on? What was the no, monetization we, piece? We, yeah, in hindsight, we, could have made some good money, but our, the thought was like, this is, you know, by the community for the community. We don't want to make it pay to win. Cause a lot of the competition at the time was like, if you wanted to spend 10 bucks, you could have a significant advantage over people that didn't spend money. And we didn't mm-hmm. want that to be part of the game. So it was all aesthetic based. So it was like, change the color of your name or like gave you a little badge on the website and then in addition to that, we sold some sponsorships like during the live streams, but that really was kind of break even for the most part, like, especially at that point in time, server costs were, were pretty high. Like I remember we were spending like 500 or something a month on servers. And for me, you know, in high school, a, a team of high schoolers, like yeah, that, was, that was, that was a lot of money for us. And yeah. it just, it just didn't, I'm all, it I don't want to pay more than a hundred bucks for hosting today. Like, let alone. <laughs> yeah, it, it was crazy. And we were like, I, the, we, yeah, we were, uh, we were trying to figure out how to make it happen. And um, it, we really didn't end up monetizing it, unfortunately. Did end up selling it a couple years later to um, one of our competition that wanted to kind of aggregate the marketplace a little bit into, and own a bigger percentage of the market. That wasn't a huge acquisition, but it, it was something to get kind of at the end. Um, the bigger piece for me was the experience of developing a game, running a community, you know, running live events, you know, everything that went into it. And then plus, the, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the connections that came through it, like a lot of the YouTubers that I worked with at that point in time are still massive YouTubers today. And it just kind of, it put me on a path for my career. Wow, that is just amazing. Well, and I would think too, that what made it a saleable asset was the audience. 
right? Totally. Yeah, the brand name yeah. as well, like all the assets of it are around it, as well as the code um, that was also in all the maps and everything. Oh my gosh. Okay. So first of all, I didn't know you started that in high school. That's nuts. <laughs> but it, it's amazing. It's amazing. So what happened then between that and Warren James? That seems not a big leap, but I mean, what, what's gone on in between then? <laughs> from from then, that put me on a path that I was like, okay, I want to go down video game development as my career path. So I went to Savannah College of Art and Design for interactive media and game development. And my first year in college, I was playing Smite professionally. It was, uh, it's a still around, but um, it was really popular at that point in time. It's like a MOBA similar to League of Legends. And um, through that, made some connections, started to re- get really dialed in with the esports space. Mm-hmm. And back then, you know, just like roughly 2013, 2014, the space was extremely underdeveloped. There weren't too many players in the space. There wasn't a lot of money in the space. And we came up with the idea of, at that point in time, it was pretty it was pretty siloed in that an esports community, for the most part, had a League of Legends team or an esports company had a Call of Duty team. They hardly ever went across games within the same organization. So the idea we had was like, why not create you know this brand that is an umbrella brand across all of the major esports games out there? So have a Call of Duty team, a League of Legends team, a Smite team, et cetera, et cetera. And then use the collective audience size to, to sell advertisement as if like the Yankees had, you know, a soccer team, a basketball team, a tennis team, a baseball oh, team, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And that was kind of what led me to my, after my freshman year of college, things started to pick up a little bit. And the thought was, okay, let's let's take the summer to really focus on this project and then see how it goes and near the end of the summer it was really really quickly growing and i was like you know what i could always go back to college you know why not pursue this for a little while and see what happens mm-hmm. and i ended up just you know never going back so the, i was at that organization for roughly 2 years or so um and through that Unfortunately, you know, always, you know, in hindsight, the esports space is, has ballooned in valuation, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. back then it wasn't super profitable. And I, through that, through going to events and, and meeting companies and selling advertisement, I met Jazzwares, the the massive toy manufacturer, and they they gave me a good opportunity to join them to kind of lead their gaming division in a sense, because at that time, they had the Minecraft um, retail license, and they historically had worked with games like Sonic the Hedgehog and Mega Man. So they were very dialed in with gaming and they very forward thinking company. And they're like, we identify that gaming is going to be a bigger portion of retail moving forward. So we want to you know, put our, our flag in the ground and we want to make sure that we're paying attention to it. So they brought me on to, to kind of be that that person to keep my ear to the ground within the gaming space. So that was kind of my, and as well, like going through Hungercraft and going through the esports organization, I was like, I'm, I don't have any corporate experience. I'm still really young. I don't have an education. Like I w- it would be great to, to have mentors at a bigger company and, and learn from this experience. So that kind of ultimately made me make the decision to move down to South Florida from Columbus, Ohio at the time um, and go full time for Jazzwares. 
Your story is so fascinating, Kevin. I'm just, I'm like, I want to pick it apart a little <laughs> Thank bit. You. So I, I just, I love it. I love that you just had ideas and you acted on them and then you dug deeper and you trusted your gut with some. Where, where along that path were you ever like, oh my God, what am I doing? Or here's a challenge. And maybe it's, you know, ignorance is bliss at a certain point. But I mean, you make it sound very easy, that whole journey. What, were there any challenges in there? Oh, totally. Yeah. Every stage of the way, especially during, <laughs> during the, my owned companies, it, 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 like you said, ignorance a little bit is nice because like, you don't know that you're not doing things correctly. Um, but there, there were like moments where it's like, you know, we, uh, how, how are we going to make enough money to do what we're trying to do here? Or a, a big thing that I faced a lot earlier in my career, like being, you know, I, when I was at Jazz, when I started at Jazzwares, I believe I was I was nineteen or twenty. So, you know, going into these meetings with when I was at the esports company or when I was at Hungercraft, going to these meetings with major game publishers or you know just major companies and trying to sell them on advertising or sell them on partnerships, and they they see a teenager walk in. You know, it's like just fighting through some of the assumptions people make of you when you're when you're young. It's a double-edged sword. Like a lot of times people will be like, wow, like you're, you're clearly not legitimate. And you're like, you're just, you're faking until you make it. But a lot of people, you know, Judd, like the, the, the founder and CEO of Jazzwares has a way, a lot of people have a way of seeing it on the other side of like, wow, like you're showing signs of being an entrepreneur, of being successful later in life. Like you're at such a young age, you're, you're trying to do these things. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but um, yeah, totally. There were, it's so tough. Like looking back, I'll like identify and be like, oh, wow. <laughs> I, if I was there, if I was there now, I would have handled that differently. Yeah. But that's how we learn, right? I yeah. mean, you have to kind of figure it out. So, okay. So you're working for Jazzware. Where was the leap to Warren James? Yeah. So at, at the time I was managing, um, licensing for within gaming. So I was like trying to identify gaming properties for them working with Minecraft as well. And then we, at, at one point, like 2016 or so, came up with the idea of going out and signing all the top gaming YouTubers and putting them underneath an umbrella brand called Tube Heroes, turning them into action figures and plush toys, and then <laughs> selling it into retail. So we got people like the Diamond Minecart, Captain Sparkle, Sky is Minecraft, all the biggest guys at the time, and put them in Toys R Us, Target, Walmart, it went global. It did tons of money within that two-year period. And through this, I had my ear to the ground of YouTube. Like I was always trying to identify up-and-coming creators for us to sign. Like we, in aggregate, we had like 10 billion views across all the channels. There's like 50 creators or so. And I started to notice creators that, you know, they're making Minecraft content or whatever, they would start to create content for Roblox and this, the, their videos would start to just, they would blow up off of these videos. It would do double or triple their normal viewership and started to okay, really look. Ro- into- you got to tell me Roblox because you mentioned that the other day when we were talking and I was like, what is Roblox? I feel so Yeah. Old. So R-O-B-L-O-X, Roblox. Oh, Roblox. Um, okay. Yeah. It's a, it's kind of a little difficult to explain what it is. It's like the, it's within a new space they're calling the the metaverse where it pulls together a couple elements of um, social. So it, it's 
a platform where you go on, you create your own avatar. There's a catalog. You can buy outfits. You can buy accessories, et cetera. So you customize your avatar. And then there's a big catalog of games that you can jump in and play with your friends. And the games are made by the community. So like I could go on there, um, develop a game using the Roblox assets and the Roblox tools, publish the game to the platform, and then users come across it in the catalog or I market it and they'll jump in and play my game and they could spend money. And then if they spend money, I make some money. And in addition to that, it's got like voice chat. It's got text chat. It has, they have like live events. Like um, I think later this month um, or sorry, last month they had um, Lil Nas X do a live concert in Roblox. Um, So it's kind of a social meets video game platform. Um, and at the time I started to see it and looked into it and it's like, okay, so it has a bit of a snowball effect to it because players will go to the game. They'll play these games. They'll spend money. The developers will make money from it. Then they'll have the ability to hire staff and more developers and make better games, which in turn will make more people come and play the game. So it's kind of like a a little bit of a snowball effect. And I mean, they went public earlier this year at right now, their market cap, I think is like 50 billion or something. Um, So they got really lucky with identifying them back in 2016. So at Jazzers went and signed the master toy rights for Roblox. Um, By the time we signed it, we realized it was really going to be something special. So I then moved to China, Shenzhen, China, to oversee product development to get it out on like an expedited timeline. And it it's still retail today. It's a massive, massive. Like I think it peaked at, within the top five um, boys' property at retail in the US um, within toys. So it's you know, it's it's a massive program. And I oversaw like two toy lines when I was at Jazzwares for it. And then eventually Roblox approached me and asked me to switch sides of the table and go work for them to manage their merchandise business um, in-house. So, I, you know, I, I took the opportunity and, and moved to San Francisco. Um, and that was, a, that was, it was kind of funny. I, being on the other side of the table, I was then managing Jazzware. So like I was then, <laughs> I switched from working for the company to managing the company. Yeah. But, but who, who better to do it? Kind of. <laughs> Yeah, it, I, I was. It was interesting because I understood both sides, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it worked quite well. And then I was at Jazzwares, or sorry, I was at Roblox for a little under two years. But all throughout this, I'd been helping creators on the side with their merchandise programs. It was like, you know, for a while, like 2015, 2016, it was a lot of logo slapping, a lot of print on demand. And then there eventually just was like, a, there was a shift in the market, and. I think YouTube got cooler. Parents were more comfortable putting their credit card into YouTubers' websites to buy product. The product would show up. And it just, it's something started to change. And my business partner, Ben and I, who were, we both both been helping creators, kind of just came to the conclusion at the same time that if we didn't take the jump now and go full time into this, we'd be looking back on what we thought was going to be a massive industry. Um, And so this was, beginning end of 2018 beginning of 2019 and from there we moved moved from san francisco to los to, down to los angeles to be in like the heart of entertainment the heart of domestic manufacturing oh my god what a story i swear to god kevin i have like 
20,000 questions to go sideways. <laughs> but I'm like, I just think it's fascinating. I mean, you moved to China. That must have been an amazing experience Then China to San Francisco. And I mean, I, I just think it's astounding. So, so let's <laughs> halfway in now, let's jump into Warren James. So Ben, where did you and your co-founder Ben connect? We actually connected back um, during Hungercraft. So back in high school, we, um, one of his friends, when I think it was his middle, middle school friend, was working for me on the community side. So we got introduced. We became friends through that. And then when I got into college, funny enough, he was on that professional smite team that I was on. He was mm. the AD carry and I was his support. Um, so that was kind of our, it kind of took a little bit further in terms of our engagement, how much we were talking about opportunities. And then when I was, especially when I was living in China, it opened up my eyes to like, I saw fidget spinners really, really early. Um, we tried to do a fidget spinner, pro- fidget spinner project with a YouTuber. Um, we, at that point in time, we also opened up a warehouse in Southern Florida to do fulfillment and print on demand. So it just kind of naturally, we just started jumping after we both had the inclination to be entrepreneurs. So we just like naturally just started jumping on projects. And um, when I was at at one point when I was at Roblox, um, he moved to uh, San Francisco, lived on my couch. Um, we just kind of like brainstormed, you know, what it could be based on what we were seeing in the creator space. And then um, that was kind of the the jumping off point. <laughs> just, all right. I sort of, this is so fascinating. All right. So you guys decided to go all in with this. How did you get this started? I mean, obviously you had connections. You, I mean, the whole ability to to get stuff produced and reach out to influencers. Did you get funding for this? Did you guys self-fund it? How, what was the beginning stages of going, let's go all in with this? And I like the the the, um, the naming. So if you guys want to share just with the listeners how you guys came up with Warren James. <laughs> yeah, well, so Warren James, Ben's middle name is Warren. My middle name is James. The, the thought process behind it is like, especially at, at this point in time, the creator economy was extremely unsophisticated. So we wanted to have a name that showed a little bit of mature maturity to it. Um, kind of sounds a little bit like a law firm. Um, but yeah, that was, we wanted to sneak our names in there uh, without being super <laughs> blunt. Um, yeah. but yeah, so luckily had the connections with creators. We funny enough, our first, um, real account was AFMAO, which is just crazy that we've been involved with their, their, their story up to this point, because they're right now they're currently sitting at, the biggest gaming channel in the world getting roughly half a billion views per month. And when we started working with them, they were doing, you know, 30 or 40 million views per month, which is still, which is incredible. That's a huge account, but going from 30 to 500 million um, during the last three years, it's, it was a real blessing to be partnered with them because from pretty much from day one, uh, they, they tasked us with, a couple of projects, one of them being a plush toy project, one of them being a role play project. And for us, day one, it was sizable enough that like we were just so focused on their program. We would day one pretty much booked a flight to China and spent that year. I think I went five or six times um, for AFMAO to oversee development and production at different stages. And it was just it was just awesome having an account from the beginning that we could just really dedicate our time to um, and learn and grow with. So they really, I mean, not necessarily that they funded it, but they really helped you take off from the beginning and, and set everything up. And so you already had relationships in China for manufacturing and product sourcing. Now, when it comes to 
So let's say you're working with them and, and you want to do some plush. Do you guys design it? Where do you get the designs done? What is that process like? So it's it's changed a bit um, since when we first started. When we first started, we were really scrappy with it. But now we have in-house design. Um, we have a whole creative team. We have a creative director, um, both in the U.S. and China. We have technical designers in China and, and uh, fashion designers in the U.S. But back then, it was it, we were just we'd go on Fiverr. We'd go we'd, we'd search anywhere possible, you know, to find artists that we could afford to help us create the designs that uh, we were trying to go after. But um, I, I'd answer one of your questions from earlier. We did do a angel round of investing. Um, when we launched the company, which gave us a little bit of runway, um, gave us, you know, a little bit of security, you know, buying a ticket to China is not cheap, right? Like getting the hotel in China and all that. Just like it gave us a little bit of runway. Uh, we didn't raise a whole lot, but it was enough for us to to know that we had enough time to to make it happen. We had some time to to make some failures, lose some money, and then like learn what we were doing and then and get it on the right path. Man, it's it's just astounding. So when you guys started, I, I'm guessing, like it looks like, I mean, just from our conversation the other day, so I've been making assumptions here, but you were in sort of like a warehouse or manufacturing. So do you have facilities in Los Angeles now, as well as the relationships with manufacturers out, outside of the US? We had facilities in Los Angeles. COVID really shook up the manufacturing space, especially in the US. We we do have a facility like a warehouse in Southern China or sorry, Southern California that we will put product in sometimes. But at this point, um, our, our operation in China is, is quite large. We have roughly 25, 30 people in China full time. We have our office there that is made up of product designers, product developers, quality control, um, accounting, you know, everything that goes into to running a facility. And then we have our own warehouse fulfillment center in China that's we'll actually ship, we'll move product from a factory to our own warehouse in China and then ship it directly to the customer. Um, and that, that's been caused by a symptom of COVID disrupting supply chains. And actually funny enough, through it all, we found that it's cheaper and faster for us to ship a product from Guangzhou, China, our own facility to a customer in the US than it is for us to put it on a boat, bring it into the States, onboard it in a facility in California, and then ship it out. So that's predominantly what we do now. And then in addition to that, we also own an apparel factory in Guangzhou, China. It's all our office, the apparel factory, and the fulfillment center are all in the same warehouse building. So we can go from designing an item, manufacturing the item, moving it upstairs to the warehouse, and then out the door to the customer, all verticalized, all through Warren James employees. Wow, this is so fascinating. So <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about who you guys work with and how that process happened. So my understanding is, I mean, you guys, with your experience, I, I'm guessing that you, do you source and approach influencers or, I don't, want, I don't know what other term to use, let's say creators instead of influencers, but so are you, are you going after still specifically in the gaming market? I mean, how do you get those people that are like, yeah, let's go ahead and let's do this, especially since you're doing so much in-house for them. Like you guys are kind of running the whole show and they just use their brand to market it is my understanding. Definitely. Yeah. So 
because we really have product development as the backbone of our business, the fact that both Ben and I come from a product development you know, uh, career, we came into this space trying to treat these brands as you would a a mainstream property, right? Like as you would a SpongeBob or a, a Pokemon and not forcing them to fit inside of a, a box, you know, of, okay, it's easy to make t-shirts. It's easy to make hoodies. It's easy to make mouse pads. And that's what you got. That's what you have to choose from. We really look at each brand holistically, look at what the brand represents, looks at, look at who the audience is and then identify what product assortment will truly make sense for this audience and what will they appreciate? So at this point we've, we've produced, I mean, we've produced so many categories, everything from cut and sew apparel to plush and toys, to jewelry, to consumables, to furniture, stationery. Like we've, uh, we've done a massage gun. We've done an ice cream maker. It's like, we, we've made some pretty crazy <laughs> categories. Yeah. And because of that, we can work with any type of creator um, that has a, you know, an engaged large audience, right? So like we, we work with Tucker Budson, you know, the, the most famous golden retriever on the internet. Oh, I friggin' love those videos. Yeah. It's adorable. And like <laughs> yeah. for them, like the, the demographic is different than, you know, Afmau's younger audience demographic. So the product assortment is different. And just because of what we can do on the creative side and on the product side, we don't just work with gamers. We, we work with any creator, right? But that being said, because, you know, custom product making, you know, a custom gaming chair, there's minimums and there's investment associated with that. We, we tend to only work with the largest creators out there. Um, creators that, you know, are doing millions a year in direct to consumer revenue. Because they've got the audience to sell it. And there's, I mean, in terms of getting this stuff, I have no idea what type of investments required, right? But to, because you're looking at starting a merchandise line with people, right? You're not looking at, oh, let's let's create one thing. And the goal is to create a merchandise line to add a revenue stream for them and for you guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we look at it as like we're, in many cases, we're building brands. Like a lot of the the programs we do, like um, destroying um, the biggest like football influencer, um, former D1 athlete. For him, it's not destroying merchandise. It's the eleven by destroying and it's an athletic clothing line. And that's the thought process we typically take. Like AFMAU is not AFMAU merch. It's funny is not it's funny merch. It's crew district by it's funny or crew district. Um, so it's all about building these standalone brands that will at some point transcend the creator themselves. These programs could be spun off into their own companies. They could go through venture. They could be sold. Um, so we don't really call it merchandise like a lot of times it's it's apparel development or it's um it's just custom product development right it's not it's not merchandise no i totally get it it's not really relative but i mean it's like i'm such i'm a little bit obsessed with newsletters and this sort of second coming of them and when i work with people i'm like you want to create a publication it's not just your newsletter so that it's a standalone asset in essence is what you're building right with a, a unique audience for that company and it's so my understanding with you, it's similar in that, you know, the brand, the influencer, whoever it is, it's like, there's the powerhouse behind it, but it's, it becomes a potentially saleable company if that's what you want to do with it. Yeah. Spot on. 
Wow. Wow. So what do you, do you have expectations of what they, of what they do with the product once you guys have developed it or literally it's like, Hey, it's up to you now. (laughs) Or, Or do you guys work on a game plan to, to market? It's super collaborative. The, the process with them, like we, we just, you know, we found that, you know, the cooler the product is, the more excited the creator is and the more likely they are to market it. But mm-hmm. that being said, like we, we our brand team and the marketing team will work really closely with the creator to, to build out a strategy that makes sense for them based on their content, right? Like everyone uploads different ways and, you know, they have different social outlets that they use for pushing product, like certain creators, the community tab on YouTube is super powerful. Other creators, their Instagram is really relevant. So we'll, we'll work with them. Um, to build out that strategy because it's, you know, it's a mixture of they don't want to sell out, but, you know, you want to make as much money and sell as much product as possible. So like really trying to understand that balance. And a lot of times, you know, we'll, we'll generate assets for them so that they've got, you know, imagery and video videos to show in their content to make it a little bit easier, take the work off of their plate. And, you know, a lot of times it's all about, especially with the older demographics, it's it's about building up hype in advance of a launch. So starting to seed the product, we'll put together like influencer care packages where we'll send a box of the apparel out to other YouTubers so that maybe they'll wear it, maybe they'll post about it. And we'll also in many cases produce less inventory than we know the creator would move. That way it sells out quickly. And it's like, okay, if you want to take part in this this experience next time, you got to you got to move a little bit quicker. You got to buy a little bit faster, right? So, um, which uh, the fans like, as weird as it, like they actually kind of enjoy that. It's like you're taking part in a moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was the company? I'm totally drawing a blank. I mean, my son was telling me they used to do drops, and I mean, they, that was it. They would do it for one day, and you had to, and then people started just reselling it because they knew. Oh, Supreme. Supreme. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. 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 Super similar, like marketing strategy. We, we don't do that all the time because, like, if if it's a we work with some creators that have like toddlers as the audience um, and doing a drop yeah. model is not, it's not going to yeah. work. Like we're trying to reach the parents and it's like, so um, it depends, but that's a lot of times that works for a lot of like the teens to young adults. Interesting. So is, what would you recommend? Let's, let's talk a little bit about what happened. Uh, I mean, I don't know how deep you want to go with COVID and because it's, it's turned everything upside down. And, you know, when we were talking the other day, I was mentioning a friend I want to connect you with, and they're doing a, a series of sort of documentaries called the death of brick and mortar, which is all about e-com and all of this. And so wh- where do you see some big changes that have happened sort of in the merchandise space or manufacturing in terms of people who are listening to this thinking, Oh my God, I've got this idea for a product. I've always wanted to, to get a product created and get it out there. I mean, and I know you guys are specific to the creator space, but for those, for those of us who don't have, you know, millions and billions of views, you know, what would you, where would you tell someone to start? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it, it's unfortunate that like, you know, we're talking about COVID hoping that it was in the past, but like, you know, it's starting mm-hmm. to to come back up a little bit, but yeah. you know, the, the biggest thing we've kind of seen you know, there was a period last year where at the beginning of COVID e-commerce sales were just through the roof, you know, mm-hmm. it retail wasn't really an option. People were buying like crazy amounts of toilet paper on Amazon, right? It was just like, Ugh, everyone yeah. was seeing this massive increase, but that aside where it's come back down to um, the new normal, the the big thing is the supply chain is still to this day, just totally disrupted. Like, 
I don't know if you've seen, but like container costs have like tripled or quadrupled. There's just port delays on the China side and port boats are just stuck on the U S side with containers on them, not able to unload. And it's just like, even trucking has been disrupted in the U S because of the labor force. So it's just been kind of thrown upside down. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, you know, retail is starting to pick up again. Like I know, um, especially like target and Walmart are doing pretty crazy numbers yeah. now that they're back open again. The, the big thing that I'm kind of seeing is a shift sort of to direct consumer from those big retailers. Like they're starting to in the past, right. It was like, you look at um like a hot topic, right. Or you look at a Walmart versus an Amazon for um, these like massive retail toy programs. Like the dot com was like, was just, it was whatever in the past. Yeah. It was like, they would always be like, Hey, we want to test you on the dot com. And like, that was a worst case scenario. Cause like, you're going to move like no product. Cause they got like right. no traffic. Um, but COVID has caused those retailers to be like, well, hold on. It's convenient. There's a habit there. There's a bigger variety selection wise. Like maybe this is, maybe there's a place here in our business for .com. And kind of through that as well, like the interesting thing looking at our business and we're actually doing a program um, next year where we're taking one of our bigger creators into retail. The, the value proposition is that we have so much data you know, we, we, we know average cart size, we know returning customer rate, we know retention rate, we know what items are selling best. We know what items are causing them to leave. We know like what price per item makes sense, what price is too high, what price is too low. And like, we have all this data that you can't get at retail, like POS, POS data at, at Walmart and Target will tell you like, roughly how much you're selling, you know, like on a day-to-day basis, but it's really kind of weekly and really monthly. And it's, you don't get very much. It's like, you're, you're trying to read in between the lines to understand what's going on. So for a retailer looking at direct consumer, it's a, it gives them a lot of confidence, you know, bringing a new brand in brand in. So it's like, Oh, you guys are doing whatever in terms of sales and you have all this data, like, okay, I'll, I'll put you, I'll give you placement. Cause I know pretty confidently that you're going to move through a certain amount of product. And then in addition to that, you know, you have your .com. So you have a pretty strong audience there that's checking the website every day. You can use that audience and drive them into the retail store. So it's like, it's starting to become like a good addition to to the retail. Like and retail's I, woken up finally. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I think it'll just continue over time. Um, that percentage is going to shift more and more to direct to consumer. Wow, that's fascinating. It's the one thing I always thought about with, you know, you look at online advertising and I mean, as much as Apple's trying to shut stuff down with some of that, you know, the fact that you have so many more points of data and you can literally see, oh, they left the, the page at this time and, you know, or they 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 did this action and this action, but then they stopped here. And so you know where to tweak and course correct in that marketing funnel. Totally. Yeah. It's um it's eye opening, like coming from retail, going to direct consumer, like there's so much there. Um, and that, that it's super valuable. Wow. So what would you recommend? What would you tell somebody who thought, who thinks I want to get into manufacturing my own merchandise line? I mean, forget the audience piece of it, but just that, that front end piece of, I want to create a physical product. Yeah. It's, it's tough to remove the audience or the consumer Mm -hmm. from the conversation because, you know, you can have the best product in the world, but if you, if you can't 
if you can't reach anyone with it, right, it's not going to sell. That that being said, though, there are a lot of resources out there. You know, Amazon. Um, I've got a bunch of friends that make crazy amounts of money selling on Amazon. Like I have a friend like fulfilled that, by Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. they, I have a friend who, you know, I, there, there's software out there to help you like dig into what's moving on Amazon and trying to identify holes in the market. But I had a friend who identified that these circle sponges for the sinks, you know, that for whatever reason, there was a hole in the market in terms of like customers were looking for something and it wasn't really available. So he went and got those produced and he he was making like a million in the first month of listing on Amazon. That being said, right. You know, that's an extreme example, but you know, Amazon has the audience already, right? So it's right. it makes it there are resources where you can focus more on finding your your place in the market and not having to connect the whole picture. But understanding the audience and how you're gonna reach them is like it has to kind of go in tandem with deciding what you're gonna make. Yeah. And then in well, addition to that, there's like Shopify and WooCommerce and a bunch of if you don't go the Amazon route, if you feel, you know, you have a strong understanding of digital marketing or whatever it might be, you could also do it yourself. And it's, it's relatively plug and play. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in terms of what I'm saying, you know, leave the audience aside, just in, I mean, I would assume you have to have an audience, right? I mean, this is not for somebody who I always tell people this with content marketing, any of that. I mean, build the audience first. I mean, build a relationship, connect with them and then make an offer as soon as you can, as soon as you have validation that your audience likes what you're doing and who you are, you know, get something out there as quick as possible. Um, so <clears throat> since you guys are collaborating with the creators, let me ask you this. Where do you go about finding creators? Are you guys just paying attention to what's happening on social or obviously in certain spaces or people approaching you now? How does that relationship come about? We we do have some creators that reach out to us through social or through other creators or, you know, through our website. But, the you know, the vast majority is always going to end up being because we we're, we're quite selective with who we work with because they have to hit certain thresholds in terms of the business size. So, you know, in regards to getting in touch with like those types of creators, we we've got a business development team that just solely focuses on outreach and, you know, an account acquisition. So, you know, we, they, they, they do everything under the sun, right. In terms of identifying, it's like, you know, really dialing into the data on YouTube, understanding who's trending, who's not trending, paying attention to upcoming platforms, like, you know, looking at TikToks now no longer, I guess, an upcoming platform. But when it when it first came out, paying attention to who is trending there or Clubhouse or wherever it might be. And creators are tough. They're they're most of them, they're not they're not a business, right? They don't have, for the most part, they don't have like someone on the other end that's checking that their email every day. It's a little bit of trying to shock and approach it, like sending them a cold email, you know, maybe tweeting at them on Twitter, trying to understand like a lot of them, the big ones will have like formal representation by the WME or CAAs of the world. So like trying to get in touch with whoever the representation is, but it's tough sometimes. Like some of them are just like a black box and there's like nothing available of how to get in touch with them. And in that instance, (laughs) we have to like, we have to pull the favor card and like try to ask someone we work with, like, "Hey, can you can you help us here? Like, can you reach out to them?" That's so funny that there's no way to get in touch with them. I, I'm just different generations, I think, probably. Well, is I I kind of get it to a certain degree because like if 
you know, looking at Mr. Beast, right. For example, he he does have public info, but like the amount of fan emails he probably gets is like whatever form of, of contact is available. The fan base is going to find it and it's going to, it's going to hit him up, you know? So it's like, I kind of get it how it's like, how do you, how do you make this like this conver this communication channel just for business people um, and not have it just get flooded by fan mail? Valid point. Totally valid point. So <clears throat> let me ask you this. So if somebody, you know, is listening and they're smaller, they they wouldn't be an ideal candidate for you, maybe. What would you recommend? Would you say, you know, start with print on demand and see if your audience wants merchandise from you? Because I mean, there's a difference between merchandise and there's and and swag, right? Like I love swag. I don't know why it's dumb, but like <laughs> yes, I love t-shirts from companies that I love, right? I just do. And so it, it's one of those things that at the same time, like you get to a point, you're like, yeah, I don't need another plastic water bottle or a tote bag that's just really can hold like two books. But, you know, what would you recommend to somebody who thinks they want to start, get into the merchandise space? I, I highly recommend people getting into merchandise. It's like, it's such a strong marketing tool. It's a revenue stream. Um, it's brand extension, right? There, There's a lot that, in addition to the money element, there's a lot that, that makes it valuable for creators. And I always say like, you know, regardless of the size of the creator, like the fan base wants merch, right? Like the fan base doesn't care how big the fan base is. It's just like, they know that they want to engage with you. So um, they're, they're not going to be on board with the idea of like, okay, I'll you'll come out with merchandise when you're way more popular. Like they, they, you know, they don't, they don't get that, you know? So um, I think it's worth getting into merchandise as soon as that, as soon as you identify that there's a customer there. Right. And, you know, one of the, big value points of being smaller is that like typically the audience is more engaged. So, you know, pull your audience, see what they want, see what they, they vibe with, you know, use the poll tool on Twitter or the community tab and like start to figure out, you know, is it that they just want t-shirts or is it like, I've seen creators come out with, um, you know, electronics to start or plush toys. Like they'll really dial in to what it is their, their audience truly wants. And they'll come out with that. Um, those types of items, right? The more custom ones are a little more challenging because there's there's not really print on demand solutions for that. Yeah. If if the answer you get back is like yes, we want hoodies, we want hats, we want t-shirts, I would recommend going the the on demand route to start because the the lack of risk, right? You don't have to purchase inventory. The unfortunately, the downside to print on demand is the the quality of the product. Yeah, I would. I would recommend like doing your research on that, right? There's a lot of providers out there that offer that. There's a lot of different types of blanks out there, right? So like, you know, infamously it's like, oh, print on demand is terrible. And like the item that shows up is a Gildan blank or whatever. And it's like, okay, well, that is literally, you know, the bottom tier. That's the cheapest garment available for on demand. Like Mm -hmm. maybe you don't go that route. Maybe you go the champion route or you go the American apparel or the Los Angeles apparel route in terms of your blanks. And like, unfortunately it hurts your margin, but you know, the pro the quality of the product's a lot higher and like, it saves your brand, right? I mean, it hurts your brand, your, your margin, but it helps your brand. (laughs) Yeah. And especially in in the beginning, right? Like those fans, those really diehard engaged fans wearing a hoodie that they're really happy with, that's going to pay dividends, right? Like you're going to make way more in the long run than you did off of the lost margin, right? Um, so that, that that's what I would recommend. And then 
a big thing creators, I feel like always take a mis- always have a mistake of is, you know, if they go the on-demand route, you look at the catalog available from these providers and it's like everything under the sun, right? And yeah. <laughs> they, sl- they select everything and you go to the store and it's like, you got 127 items available. Like consumer paralysis is a real thing. Totally. Like, dial- Decision fatigue. <laughs> yeah. Dial that back. Like, let's come out with a couple things. Let's see how it goes. Like, come out with the things that truly make sense and then make educated moves from there, get data and make decisions moving forward. Don't throw out, like the one that always kills me is like, it's a gaming channel or whatever. And you like, they have aprons for sale on their website. It's like, I mean, if you're a cooking <laughs> creator, but like, why are you selling aprons? You know? Totally. Totally. Yeah. I don't think, yeah, that's pretty funny. No, I think that's, that's hugely valuable. And I I've seen that too, or a lot of people, they, if somebody wants to sell merchandise with the brand and you're like, Whoa, there's too many. And you know, it's interesting to the research piece of it. So I think I was telling you the day. So I have another brand e-commerce and it's the content creators planner. It's a physical content planner that we've got some digital versions and stuff too. But, you know, we originally were looking at, cause it's a, it's a spiral bound now, but we were originally looking at like a faux leather bound anyways, but we, we started pricing and we were looking at China. It was fascinating. And we had a handful of samples done and we ended up with somebody in the United States who did the lowest minimums and they it was the highest quality. I mean, I, I couldn't have painted a better picture for us. And so it's taking the time to do that and do your research. And then, you know, if you're going to go the merchandise route, I mean, would you recommend outsourcing overseas, which you need huge minimums though? Yeah, it depends on the category. There are items that like, for example, notebooks, like a lot of times the minimum is 100 pieces in China with the right supplier. So th- there's ways to get that down. And like, I, I feel like, you know, even if you're, you have a pretty small audience, like a hundred hats, a hundred notebooks, like it, you'll eventually move through it, right? Like it's, it's usually not a huge investment. So that's what I would typically recommend in the U S there are options, but the fun, usually funny enough, the, the minimum is a lot higher in the States because U S labor is more expensive and like the supply chain isn't as sophisticated as it is in China. So um, it depends on the category, but like if you want to do cut and sew apparel or tie dye in the States, like true tie dye in the States, the minimum can be upwards of a thousand pieces sometimes or 500 pieces. So um, it kind of, it kind of depends on what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as you're saying that it's funny because, and this was also, we probably didn't have the resources. I think the minimums we were looking at, which we shifted the direction, but was like a thousand in China. But then we found a printer in the US for two for 250 minimum, you know, to get going. Um, and the price points were great too, which even, you know, we saw our our um, price per planner go up during COVID too, because of the manufacturing and stuff go up. I mean, even it's still profitable and everything, but um, we watched that too. God, Kevin, I feel like I could pick your brain all day. This is so <laughs> fascinating. This is wonderful. Um, so where's the best place for people to find out more about what you guys are doing and just to dig into this? Yeah, I, I think LinkedIn's always a, a great place. Um, you know, myself, Kevin Ramsey on LinkedIn. We also have Warren James on LinkedIn. Uh, we also have our website, warrenjames.org. That one's a little more uh, white label. It doesn't have as much info. So LinkedIn or Twitter probably are the best places. I'm Kevin J, Kev J. Ramsey on Twitter or WJ Merchandise on Twitter. 
Okay, perfect. And then for everybody listening to, I will have the links in all the in the show notes and when I'm sharing this as well. So it'll be very easy to find Kevin. God, this has been fantastic. Your story is you need to write about Kevin. I think you really <laughs> need to write. I'm not kidding you. It's just a fascinating story. And I think it's a huge inspiration. And I love that you followed your gut and just kept taking one step after the other. I mean, it's it's a great story. So put that on the back of your in your head. You need to write a book about your story. Yeah, maybe that's nice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. So Kevin, thanks again for joining us. And we will catch you soon. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This episode is brought to you by my F the Hustle newsletter, the newsletter for vision-led entrepreneurs ready to enjoy the journey, do good work, and grow a profitable business. It is time to ditch the hustle. Just go to kimdoyle.com forward slash F the Hustle to sign up today.